welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Amen. Okay. What's up, 11 o'clock? Ready? Hey, I want to say real quick, thank you for welcoming my friend Lauren last week. I know that we have uh, various teachers that come in, and everyone has strengths and uniqueness, and it's, we have a diverse community of preachers coming in. I just want to say thank you for honoring her, for welcoming her. I know lots of you experienced some incredible things from that. I want to say I want to be a place that can welcome various people from different walks of life, that can pre- we can be a community that receives different teachings from different people. And I, I hope you're okay with that. I'm going to do that, especially this summer. I'm going to take some time away, and I have some amazing friends coming. We're going to have Tim Chaddock from Reality. We have John Tyson from New York coming. We have Julian and Katia Adams coming in the end of summer. How many fans of Julian and Kat do we have? Yeah. Um, uh, Also banning from Jesus Culture, lead pastor of Jesus Culture. So those are some of the friends. And I just want to say, be a learner as a church. Just continue to learn from the various voices that come in and be open to what they have to receive. So today I thought, hey, I had an open week. I wasn't planning on teaching, but here I am. And I'm going to preach today. Uh, And I was really inspired by something that came out a couple weeks ago. And it's from the U.S. Surgeon General's office. They gave an advisory. So two weeks ago, uh, the U.S. Surgeon General released something um, and gave an advisory. He said that we're in the United States is dealing with a health crisis. Now, before you get triggered, um, by any announcements from the government about health crisis and form of protocols and stuff like that. It's very interesting. He says we're in a new epidemic. It's an epidemic, they say. Um, will you go to that next slide for me? Um, uh, of loneliness and isolation. And that he laid out six pillars for what they called a national strategy to advance social connection. So the U.S. uh, Surgeon General's office realized that the United States has a crisis in health, and it's connected to loneliness. Here's the statistics. In recent years, one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness, 50%. And this stat comes from before COVID, when everything shut down, where people lost their, their, their communities and support systems and friends and loved ones. The research showed, I want to show you this, research, research has showed that loneliness and isolation are linked to sleep problems, inflammation, immune changes in younger adults. In older people, they're tied to symptoms such as pain, insomnia, depression, anxiety, and a shorter lifespan. In people of all ages, they may be associated with higher risks of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, addiction, suicidality, and self-harm and dementia. Those are some pretty serious things. Later in his advisory where he released this um, report, he said social connection, listen to this, is is as essential to humanity as food, water, and shelter, the advisor said. Humans are historically needed to rely on each other for survival, and modern people remain wired for that connection and for proximity to others. Let me just say this. We currently have a crisis in the Western world. And when I read this report, I got really excited. I know many of you are part of that statistic, but I realized that now we have the statistics for what is humanity's oldest ailment. It's humanity's oldest problem. Genesis chapter two, verse 18, God said after creating Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. The truth is this, our culture 
that we're living in, the society we're, growing, we're, we're spending our lives in, we've traded deep and meaningful relationships with fragile and shallow connection. And the reality is this biblical community is actually the solution to the crisis. We, as a community, are the solution to the national campaign strategy for the United States government. I really want you to think about that. That as one out of every two people you meet at your workplace is struggling with loneliness. You can define loneliness as not have some, somebody that knows you being known or, or someone that you know. The stats are unbelievable. And we're talking about health issues, like shortening your life um, because you are lonely. Think about this. One of the campaigns we can have as an evangelistic tool is just say, hey, come to the garden. Your life will last longer. So today I want to talk about that. I want to just define two things. What I'm calling, what is biblical community? Because I really do think it's a solution to the crisis we face. And the second thing is, how do we live it? How do we live out biblical community? All right? But before that, I want to give you three observations about community in general. You guys with me? All right. It's okay if you're not. I'm going to do it either way. So here we go. Number one, community is essential for a well-lived life. Hear me out. You could have all the money in the world, but still be lonely and wishing you had friends to journey with. You, can, you could be as successful as you could possibly be in your industry and not have anyone to hang out with. And what we know is that we are hardwired neurobiologically for relationship. I love what two leading psychologists said about the role of relationships to healing. And as they diagnosed those that got well from all sorts of psychological issues, there was a part of relationship that played into their well-being. They wrote this in the book, Relational Soul. At the core of our human being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We, are, we were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. That sentence right there, for some of you, is naming the thing that you're longing for. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist well without connection and communion with another. How many of you have been alone in this epic experience and wished you had someone to be with in that moment as you experienced whatever it was, whether it was a sunrise over the Grand Canyon or a concert or, or traveling through Europe, backpacking solitude that you wish the only thing that would make it better if so-and-so was here. We are designed for relationship. All of us need one another for a, well, a well-managed, a, well, a good life. Number two um, is community is preventative. This is one of my favorites. It's like being a good driver, you don't realize how many uh, accidents you prevented by just being a good driver. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like how many of you know that community is preventative? And here's, here's the thing. As a pastor of a church for the last 15 years here, I can without question tell you that in roles of increased anxiety and depression, in roles of divorce rates, the way people in our community uh, move towards divorce, move back towards addiction, there's, there's almost always a direct correlation to their isolation or withdrawal from community. 
I see it all the time. They stop going to community group. They stop going to house church. They're, they're, the problems that were already there in the first place get exacerbated over time. And then the next thing you know, they're separated because they didn't stick together in community. They didn't have someone to share the crisis they were facing. They felt alone and in shame. They didn't have someone to call them out when they were together and the one spouse would say something that they shouldn't say. They didn't have community. It's preventative. In the same way that if you're single, you need covenant community to call out the blind spots, to help you in seasons to know who you're supposed to be. Community calls out the gold. Community calls out the blind spots. It prevents you from disaster. It's what Ecclesiastes says in chapter four, verse nine. Um, uh, It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Now, I know this is some deep wisdom right here, but it's true. This is one of the smartest men to ever live in history, Solomon. He's writing his philosophy. He's giving you insights into life. And at the end of the day, if you fell and didn't have anyone to pick you up, that would be a really hard thing. And so many of you don't have anyone there to help you get up. I remember a season in my own life when I was struggling and I had friends along the journey, along the way that kept calling out the good, reminding me of what was true, showing up to my house. I remember when I had COVID just this last December, the first time I got it was 2020, end of 2022 into 2023. And man, I was alone and isolated. It was lonely. One of my friends just showed up every day with a coffee and dropped it off. We sat outside and he just encouraged me. That was a lifeline. I I got to think, When the lockdown happened, how many of us were struggling because we were isolated? We need each other. Community prevents. Uh, Later on in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, it says, but pity to anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. We know this is true. Third point I want to make about community as a pastor that I see. First one is it's it's, community is necessary for a well-lived life. The second one is it's preventative. You don't realize what you're preventing when you're in it, but you realize what you miss when you're out of it. But the third point I want to make is community is always the context for transformation. Case in point, how many of you, Ray, I want to see hands. How many of you started a diet or exercise plan that you did by yourself successfully? Just show me. I want to see how many of you did it. Put your hands up. You, did it, you should be proud. Raise, raise them up high. <laughs> Determined, grit. Look, at there's like 12 people. Okay. How many of you started a plan, didn't have community and, and stopped it? Raise your hand. Right, look at that hand. See, it's case in point. I'm going on break. There you go. We need each other for any type of meaningful change. We need it. Here's what Gerald Sitzer said. I love this author, by the way. He's a, a theologian in, in, I think he's in Washington. I got to spend time with him uh, last year. Um, and I sat with him for a few days. He has written several books. One of the things he's an expert on is loss and grief. How do you become an expert on loss and grief? Gerald lost his mom, his wife, and his two daughters in a car accident 20-something years ago. And he's, he's written about that process. And he says, listen to this, living with others is necessary for the cultivation of spiritual maturity. For life in community provides the best. In fact, the only setting in which the most important of all virtues can be formed, and that is the virtue of love. Transformation cannot happen on your own. I wanna, I wanna hit this really hard real quick. There's some of you that showed up today because your friend's getting dedicated. I just wanna say, we live in a moment of deconstruction where we think community is our podcast 
and our friends that like the podcast we like. And we've disembodied the church thinking that we can just follow someone online and follow the teachings from another place around the United States, around the world, because that, that, that is our church that we listen to and not have community to follow with. And that is an individualistic view of discipleship that's not biblical. It's not even Christian faith. You can't divorce following Jesus as a disciple from an incarnate community, flesh and blood. I am preaching. Let's go. Let's do it. Daniel's in my back. I love it, Daniel. Spiritual formation occurs, listen to this. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay, grow. Let me say that one more time for those in the back. People who stay, grow. People who leave do not grow. It is sim- a simple but profound biblical reality that we, grow, uh, that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. And this is the crisis we face in the church is that we have a culture of casual, maybe semi-committed context. We judge a church by a Sunday. We shop churches or communities based on our preferences of consumerism. And that's not biblical community at all. So the question is, what is biblical community? What are we after? And then how do we live it? If you have a Bible, let's go to Mark uh, chapter three. I want to look at this text. Um, Those are the observations I have, but now I want to help define community. Now, if you were in the first century reading this passage, I want to give you context for the book. Because it's so easy to read something like this and just go, okay, that was back then and it has some type of truth now, but we have to apply context. We have to apply context the context of the author to the group of people he was writing to with the, with the experience that he has. So in the first century, when the book of Mark was written, it was written by a guy named John Mark with kind of oversaw, uh, sorry, uh, dictated from the apostle Peter. This is apostle Peter's experiences. So he's writing, uh, John Mark's writing it. And this particular book went to the church in Rome. So imagine if you would, I'm going to use this section. Um, you guys look, I'm going to, no offense. I'm going to use this section over here. Um, <laughs> So let's say we were a house church in Rome. So let's say first three rows, there's, this is a big house church, 20-ish people, kids, people from different backgrounds. Uh, people were, were, were uh, Roman, people were Gentile, people were Jewish. Um, so this, this three rows, we, we became followers of Jesus. Now in the first century context, we, uh, you can ask that question, that's fine. In the first century context, Christians were being killed by the Roman Empire. Okay, so at the time that this was written, Nero was probably in power, or maybe it was Domitian. We don't fully know. But the purpose of the whole book is to encourage us in our discipleship to Jesus. So we were reading this biography, and the point of the biography is to follow Jesus. And so we get to this chapter in first century context. Now that matters because we're living in the 21st century context. But let's read this. It's verse 31. Do you guys have a Bible? Um, and you guys clearly didn't have a Bible because you were in Rome back in the first century. You, this is the first time you had it. The rest of us, let's show our Bibles real quick so we can show off our, yeah, I see it. Don't hold up that phone. I'm just kidding. Um, all right, listen to this, all right? So it's a section. It's really important. I'm going to read. Let's just pretend we're, we're house church in Rome 2,000 years ago, okay? So we're reading the story. Romans, uh, sorry, this is from Mark chapter 3 and verse 31. It says, then Jesus' mama and brothers were outside. It says mother. Um, standing outside, they sent someone to call him in. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are looking for you outside. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And you guys would audibly go, (gasps) you guys aren't in the church, okay? This is the first three rows. 
They looked around. Then he looked around to those seated in the circle around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. <gasps> now here's the thing. 20, you guys, you're great. Great job. You're, you're hired. 21st century, we don't really get it. Context, first century context. Jesus is confronting priorities and values of his day. Okay, so let me just say this before we give you some points. When you say yes to Jesus, if those of you that are not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook, right? So you're just listening in. Great, you're a bystander to the sermon. The rest of us, if you say yes to Jesus, here's the thing. Our context of church has done a bad job of really communicating what it means to be a disciple. Like, so following Jesus wasn't like, I'm just going to add him on to the already busy life. He's a nice little accessory. He's a spiritual guru. We're going to do some breathing exercises, cold water plunges. We're going to make our lives better. We'll show up once in a while. That's not how you follow Jesus. In the first century, it cost everything. You had a way of looking at the world, viewing the world, interacting with the world. And one of those things was called loyal, uh, family loyalty. Okay, so in the first century, your identity was shaped by your bloodline family, your name, your standing in community, your occupation, the spouse you would marry, the decisions you made were all influenced by your view of community and your standing in your actual family. So Jesus says, those who do God's will, that's my mama and my brother. What he's saying is you have to choose. And in the first century, it wasn't, oh, do I choose God or do, do I choose community? In the first century, it was, do I choose loyalty to my blood, family, or God's new family? This would have been, oh my gosh, what, I don't know what to do. There's all sorts of expectations mama has on me, my dad has on me. There's all sorts of things that are normal that you're supposed to do. You stay in line, you follow this job, you do what the family tells you. Now, this group of people that are not related to me Physically or biologically, I have to treat them like I treated those people. There's a new loyalty to the family of God. Are you with me? So three implications from this. Number one, following Jesus requires a new set of values and priorities. Now, for some of you, this is news. Like you don't just get to add Jesus onto your busy life. You get to redefine your life based on your discipleship to Jesus. He will determine and guide you in your vocation, in your family life, in the decisions you make, in your calendar, in your time, in your, your finances, in your budget. Your values now all change under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Welcome to church. If you're looking for a nice cozy ride, not the place for you. I know we got yachts, but hey, I'm gonna tell you, we're going after Jesus. Number two, first century implications, you have to choose God's family or your natural family. Very serious consequence to that. Now, if we are listening today in the 21st century, it would not be as controversial because most of us don't have a loyalty to our bloodline like they did in the first century. Some of you are great kids or parents, awesome, you're loyal. But listen, if Jesus were gonna teach us today, he probably would say, you have to choose between God's family and yourself. Because the Western context has lived a faith based on individualism. The individual autonomous self. We're not making decisions like, what does my mom think anymore? Although some of you are, I get it. My mom's here, I love you, mom. Um, but she knows, she's no. We're making decisions for ourselves. How does participating in God's family challenge the cultural norm of narcissism? 
How do I make a decision about my money when it affects my dreams and my, my, my goal of owning this thing or going on this vacation? When God's saying, no, now that you're in community, everything has to go into perspective of this becoming your family, which is why the New Testament church, there were no needs among them. People were sharing resources. They were sharing their experiences. They were sharing their lives. They were dying together because they realized that this now is family. And in our context, we're so shaped by the American way and the American dream and what's come out of a long journey since the Reformation to the sexual revolution of the, uh, the, the individual, individual uh, expressed self or the autonomous self, this idea that our whole life is whatever we want it to be. We, are, we, we, we approach community through the lens of individualism versus allowing God's family to shape our faith the way it's intended to be. This is what Jesus is after. There's no casual commitment to the church. It's covenant. It's all in. It's uh, we're gonna suffer together. That's what it means to have compassion. So I think individualism is actually the enemy to biblical community and to discipleship. This is the thing I wanna keep confronting. And you'll hear it in our sermons. Like I keep confronting it because I see how more people in the next generation are leaving the church. And I get it. I get it. I'm watching things online. I'm like, of course I'm gonna leave. If that's your definition of church, I don't want anything to do with it. I was listening to a podcast based off a Discovery Channel thing about a famous church. I'm not going to name it. And I was listening to the toxic culture and I wasn't judging the pastor. I was saying, God, where is that in my heart? Because we are all one slow slip down a long journey to becoming toxic and hubris and full of pride thinking that it's about me and our leadership then makes it about the industry, makes it about the brand, makes it about success and not about Jesus. And we do it all the time. And the easiest way to, you know, to, to not be touched by the concerns that you have for the world is to not think you're part of the problem. So our task is to repent and then do it better. It's not to criticize all of those other ways. It's just to embody the better way. Are you guys with me? So what is biblical community? A couple of thoughts on biblical community. I'll give you some definitions. Number one, biblical community is a group of diverse people bound together by their commitment to God and to each other. I'll go off this in one second, but let me give you another way of saying that. Biblical community is a group of people covenanted to one another as a new family centered around the confession that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. Biblical community is not Christian friends hanging out. So when you think, oh, I'm just going to do a house church. We're going to hang out, you know, and and we'll be a bunch of, we'll eat food together and, and talk about Jesus stuff. I don't think that's what Jesus is after when he says, this is what the church looks like, by the way. We can have friends who are Christian, but don't, don't think that that is the church. There's, there's a mission that, can you put that last one up about Jesus' um, confession? Okay, well, let me say this. I put these two together, but one of the things that I, I know is that the church or biblical community has to be diverse. Let me tell you why. It is the only institution, the only community that is made to represent people from all different walks of life. And the only thing that we could have possibly in common is that we believe Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. And that is enough to make you and I brothers and sisters. So think about this. When we think it's that and our political beliefs, we are no longer living in biblical community. It's that and my view of identity. 
No, 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 no. It's Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. That's what binds us together in covenant. We can't possibly make it about more things. Now, we, we can talk about the Godhead. This is theology, just a quick nuance. We can talk about making sure who, who we mean by Jesus. I'm not saying like the idea of Jesus, like Jesus was like Casper, the friendly ghost, or, or he didn't really resurrect from the dead. No, he physically resurrected from the dead. That Jesus of Nazareth, that's the one who's God, who's King, Father, Son, Holy That's who we're talking. At that confession, everything else is open. So you could be politically in a tribe that demonizes the other side. Right? But the problem is in Christianity, you don't get to make enemies. You don't have any enemies. And if you do, they're on your short prayer list of blessing. Great. Which is the point. What's the point? To make them your brother and sister. And so, or you could be on the other side where you're like, those are bigots and, you know, all these things. And it doesn't matter. Because when you come to Christ, when you join the church, the one thing that 100% defines who we are is that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. If you confess that, then there's all this room and space to disagree wholeheartedly with each other about lots of things, but we're going to love each other as brothers and sisters. That's what it means. Are you with me? Biblical community is a group where everyone must participate in the life of the, the community. There are no consumers, only contributors. I, I really want to say this because this is con- challenging kind of the consumer culture we live in where garden exists for your needs. No, it does not. This church exists for the renewal of all things. Your needs will be, be met along the way if you lay down your life for one another. Like, what is this community going to give me? Um, if you have that mindset, great. Check out other churches. What we're going to teach you is how to die to yourself. And in that process, as you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things are going to be added to you. You're going to have best friends for the rest of your life. You're going to, have, you're going to be challenged in your walk with Jesus. You're going to be more generous. You're going to be more patient. You're going to experience the fruit of the Spirit. You're going to see signs and wonders. You're going to be sent around the world on a mission. You're going to use your job as the primary missional space to bring God's kingdom on earth. You're going to raise up kids where your family is the vehicle of faith, not dropping them off on Sunday. That's what this church is about. Those are a lot of good things that I can name off the top of my head. Biblical community, listen, this is my definition of church in some ways, is uh, organized around the mission of God, animated by the Holy Spirit, defined by the scriptures, committed to worship, making disciples, and devoted to sharing life and resources with one another. So let me just keep that up for a moment. When I think about biblical community, when I think about the church and the challenges I have with those that have deconstructed or want like real life community, where they leave a body They leave a community to find a different version. It's often done from pain or from a a, a dream, right? Pain or dream. Like I want more out of community. But what we tend to do is make it based on our our conviction. So it becomes super relational or becomes super about the word or super about the presence of God or just about mission. And we just kind of cherry pick. And what I want to say, you can't cherry pick the church. This is what, what God's given us that the church exists for the purpose of mission. It's animated and empowered by the Spirit. Scripture has to guide the direction of where we go. We have to be committed to worshiping God, making disciples of all nations, and we learn to share life together. That's, you gotta have all those. If you have all those things, great, be a church. There's some other things about leadership too, but there you go. The point of this is to help you see that this is gonna take a miracle, but it's gonna take a lot of things, which I'll talk about what's required of it, how we live this out in one moment. But this is the dream. But even, even as I, I share my dream of what I hope we are, hope you create in house churches and missional communities, is I recognize that there's so many of us that bring our pain 
or our idealization of community to a group and we destroy it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a warning that Diedrich Bonhoeffer gives in his book, Life Together. He said this, he said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. So when you're like, I, want, I just want a church that does like the, the spirit stuff well. I just want a church that's on mission and urban. And it's, I just want a church that's all diverse and represents the marginal. I just want to, you start cherry picking your preferences. That idealization will destroy the possibility of you being in community. So what's the solution? Well, how, and I need you to see this. And even as I teach, good ideas are cool, great. Cool slide, Darren. I love the quotes. Awesome. I took pictures of them. Great. It doesn't matter unless you live it out, right? So you have to decide, I'm going li- to lead. Now I'm going to walk towards this idea. So it's embodied, incarnated in my life. So the question is then, how do we live out biblical community? So much of the New Testament are apostles writing about how to actually do this thing. The odds are stacked against us, right, to live this out. We're shaped by a culture that forms us into selfish isolation. Um, uh, there are algorithms and technology that keep us distracted from actually engaging in meaningful relationships, let alone the family breakdown for the last six, or 60 years, 80 years uh, of the revolution that's taking place to break down the family. There's so many things working against us. So we, we go out into the world and we have no chance unless you choose to try and follow Jesus into it. I love what Romans says. Look at, this is Paul. When he writes the book of Romans, he gives us a practical way to live this out. Here's how you want, you want biblical community? Someone's like, yes, I feel lonely. I want this community. Let me give you this, uh, the action steps, ready? Number, no, verse 10 of chapter 12. It says this, be devoted to one another in love. Now, we don't know what devotion looks like today. We don't. We, we live in a culture of comfort where discipline, steadfastness, devotion doesn't really exist. That alone is worth everything. Be devoted to one another in love. When we think about devoted, I want you to think about great sport athletes. Let's think about Lakers in the last playoff match. I just want to say this is just stepping outside from the pulpit for a moment. Can we just all fast and pray tomorrow for the Lakers? I see your hand. I see your commitment. Intercessor. Can I get the intercessor? <laughs> they said it's never been done. And I'm like, I know a God who can do anything. I, I've seen cancer disappear. I've seen metal plates dissolve. Don't you tell me he can't do it. <laughs> but you think about LeBron or, or Steph Curry. You talk about athletes who are committed. They are devoted. They are disciplined to the craft. And Paul's saying, think of that type of athlete who wakes up at five and takes a thousand free throw shots before the game. That type of athlete, be like that in your love for one another. Man, I am so fickle in my love. (laughs) I'm so moody. You might get hate if I'm hungry. This devoted, steadfast in my love for one another. If you, I mean, come on. That's what he's saying. You want biblical community? We need that. And then it goes on and he says, look, uh, honor one another above yourselves. So when you're treating, like prefer, defer to the other in your honor, never being lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor 
serving the Lord. We live in a moment where college, no offense, to, this is not specific. College students are like, I don't have time to serve once a month at a garden church. I'm too busy. I'm like, no, you are not. Like, listen to me. You won't have time when you have a couple of kids. I'm, I'm serious. Like, you think you don't have time. You're just not disciplined right now. Like, you have a 20-hour week job. You got a couple of units that you're studying and you're really working on your boundaries right now. I get it. <laughs> but serving the Lord with fervor requires some sacrifice and commitment. And I don't, I don't want to just go after the kids, but I'm seeing a lot of families serving kids ministry. I see husbands and wives serving together every week. And I just got to say, if you don't have kids, would you serve in the kids ministry? Give our families a break on Sunday. They're, doing, they're coming to both services with kids. My son's serving kids right now. He's nine. <laughs> He's not working on boundaries. <laughs> Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. These are all commands. It goes on and on and on. But let me tell you this. Here's, here's the point. You want to build? You want to build community, biblical community. How do you do it? Well, I just got to say, um, go to the next slide. You cannot do it apart from people. Shocker. You're not going to find the perfect group of people. Your friends, best friends won't happen because they were perfect. They happen because you committed. You showed up, you accepted, you held space. You fought for those relationships. In the New Testament, there's 59 one another statements. Here are a couple of them, right? So you wanna follow Jesus as a disciple. It's not you, yourself, and Jesus. You gotta serve one another, admonish one another, be patient with one another, build up one another. You want great friendships? What if you just did those ones? Forgive one another, bear with one another's burdens, submit to one another, comfort one another. Encourage one another, pray, confess your sins. And we're talking about, these are commands of the New Testament where if you just went down the list of the 59 one another's and you just said, I'm gonna commit to this group to do these things, you will experience some of the greatest relationships in your life. I guarantee it. It won't happen overnight. There will be rocky points where there's conflict and you, you disagree strongly and they said something that offended you. They did something that dishonored you, but you commit and you practice showing up and doing these things. You will experience it. How are we doing? Can I give you a couple more thoughts? I, I, I'm going to do it for you for the one person that really wants to hear this. I'm so passionate because here's the thing. Why am I addressing biblical community? Because we face an epidemic. The world needs to learn how to live together well. And God designed community in his image. And we should reflect to the world the, the, the Trinitarian reality that God in himself is a perfect loving community. We are designed to be the first fruits of heaven on earth. The church, you in this room. <clears throat> I know it seems crazy. I know some of you. I can't believe God chose you to show off. <laughs> can't believe God chose me. If you really knew, some of you do. I'm such a mess and I'm so broken and I'm so imperfect and I'm regularly petty and fragile and quick-tempered and rude and mean and agitated and hungry a lot. And <laughs> I say things I don't mean. I say them to win the argument. There's so, that, I'm just talking about this week. I'm not exaggerating in that statement. But as a pastor, I know how to build biblical community. My wife and I did it um, two, one month into our marriage, we started doing 
biblical community small groups. Like just, we, just, we just can't help ourselves. Everywhere we go, we just gotta do, we gotta live out meaningful relationship. Here are seven things that I think help, that are requirements for what we're after. These are the practical takes away. Seven, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna blast you real quick, okay? Seven requirements for biblical community and seven saboteurs, ready? Number one is devotion, commitment, covenant. I've already talked about that. But the opposite of that is a lack of commitment, your casual nature with community. Oh, I'm not gonna go tonight. You know, I'm tired. I had a busy day at work. When you don't show up to something you've committed to, like a house church or the church, you're robbing us of the gift that God's giving the community for you. You yourself are a gift to the community. Just show up. Number two, you have to have consistent rhythms and time together. It cannot just be spontaneous or have, uh, if you're spontaneous or if there's a lack of consistency and busyness, you will not have biblical community. So set up regular rhythms of time. Like when I tell young married couples or people who are about to get married, they need to schedule date night because you'll miss it. They're like, there's no way you'll miss date night. And you're like, just trust me. At some point in your relationship, you will need to schedule months in advance the week, the, the day of the week you're gonna go out and have a date night. Because the point isn't the routine and the schedule. Okay, let's get this guy a babysitter. Um, I see you. I see you. You're in a safe place. I feel you. What's the purpose of it? To, it the, the rhythms and the time that's dedicated creates space for intimacy. The schedule empowers it. Some of you are like, oh, that's, that's, I want to be romantic and be smart. Of course you can do that. But at some point, you got to show up at a specific time and follow through, right? Like every Sunday, 9 and 11. Or for some of you, 9, 20 and 11, 20. <laughs> like, I thought it was 11, 15. No, it's, it's 11 o'clock. Um, investment. You got to invest. And the opposite is shallow and unintentional. I always say community is like a 401k. It's like a retirement plan. If you don't invest now, you won't have it when you need it. Otherwise, the opposite is what our culture gives us, shallow. The, second, uh, the fourth thing is honesty or speaking truthfully. Truthing each other is what we call it in our staff and elder team. We got to truth each other. It means you say the thing that you, it's hard to say. You see, I think there's a, a problem where there's a lot of hiding and dishonesty, but it's unintentional. It's not intentional deceit, but we hide through niceness. Yeah. I say niceness is an idol. We need to be kind and loving and generous in spirit. But when we don't say the truth, we're lying. So when somebody did something that hurt you and you just, oh, I'll just let it go. Maybe, you know, but then they do it again and now you're, you're harboring bitterness. You're hiding from actually showing up in the meeting or the group. You're, you're still holding on to the thing they did that you, now you've seen them do it four times and now it's a pattern. That's who they are. Now you're judging them. But what started as a, a, a paper cut has now become a massive wound that compromises your integrity, not theirs. So you have to tell the truth. You have to say, hey, that hurt me when you, said, when you interrupted me when I was sharing my story and made it about you. And in a, in a truth-telling community, that person's like, you're right, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you say, no, forget you, go to hell. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. Was that okay? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> My wife's like, yeah, you're good, go ahead. Of course. But it leads to bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, which will, which will destroy any relationship. You become a prisoner and those things, it sabotages whole communities. Your resentment, your unprocessed wounds that don't come out in truth become um, potential weaknesses 
for you to be compromised in Christ. Wounding in itself is not bad, but unprocessed pain can lead to a cycle of pride, entitlement, bitterness, unforgiveness. Where, where entitlement is where I deserve this, right? So, and then you start collecting injustice and that person is no longer a brother or sister. They're the enemy that you're trying to bring all this, this weaponized anger towards. Does that make sense? Talking like an expert. Um, I am. I'm an expert. I'm so judgmental towards people. It's hard to be kind and generous, isn't it? Especially when you get hurt. You just hold on to those things and you think, well, it's them, not me. And then you're like, wait, maybe it is me. And then you're, so you just put up a massive wall in your heart. You don't show anyone. You don't let anyone in because you don't want to be hurt again. And that's what resentments do. Okay, number six, humility. We need to be humble. Uh, Pride seeps in with so many things and that will destroy a community. Last, we need purpose. Why do we exist? Even if you're a, if you, even if you're like a group dedicated to crocheting for Christ, like whatever it is, like there's a reason why you're there and people need to know why you're there. Like nobody, like, okay, okay, yes, let's just leave it. You need to have intentionality because what happens in community, and this is a big one, is you have unclear, unspoken, unrealistic, unconscious, unagreed upon expectations. Unclear, unspoken, unrealistic, unconscious, unagreed upon expectations. Destroy community. All of you have expectations about what it means to be in community, what a church should be like, what a pastor should look like, dress like, talk like. We all, what worship, we all carry all these expectations, whether it's perceived or not. You're judging the experience here. You're judging the house church group that you're in based on your expectations. Just make sure that when you look at your expectations, they're clear, they're spoken, they're realistic. You're aware of them. You might not be even aware of why you're so upset. It's because some, this pastor, this house church pastor reminds me of that other guy that hurt me. The way they talked about that, that, that guest speaker came in and they reminded me of this one place and that, that person triggered something. And now you're upset because you've been triggered by previous experiences and you're bringing all that pain and un, unprocessed junk into this moment and you're destroying the possibility of belonging. Do you see what happens? Is this making sense? So I just want you to have clear expectations. Lastly, I'll just say this, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to do ministry time. Look, if you really want community, you have to learn to share your everyday, ordinary life with people. Not just the good stuff. And look, I'm not saying everyone gets access to your life, but if you really want to build friendship and community, you got to let people into your everyday, ordinary life. Include them into the mess of your kitchen. Some of you are like, wait, time out. That's too intimate, too vulnerable. Maybe don't start there. Clean up first, but next time. Build community, share your life. You gotta learn to share your resources intentionally. This is the church. I love that when Acts 2 and 4 give a snapshot of what God's doing, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're taking communion. There's, they're in one mind. They have one heart, and there's no need among them. It's not enough to be like, oh, I love community, and, and separate your Access to resource, whether it's friendship, community knowledge, whether it's a, an extra bike or an old iPhone, you share the stuff that you have. Share the time if that's all you have. We learn to share our resources intentionally. And lastly, we learn to share the sacred space of our heart. It's not for everyone. We don't just share with anyone, everyone. We learn to let people in and we share the, the access of our heart. You gotta have people that know the dark side and won't judge you, but they'll pray into it. They'll call you out and they'll stick with you in it then you'll have biblical community. That's what we're going after. Amen? All right, can we all stand? 
Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.